Welcome to The Wonder, exploring perspectives, rituals, and observances of modern naturalistic, earth-revering, pagan religious paths. Here are your hosts, Yucca and Mark. Welcome back to The Wonder, science-based paganism. I'm your host, Yucca. And I'm Mark. And this week, we are talking about probably, I'd say, my favorite topic. It is almost Yuri's Night. So we're going to be doing an episode on space, exploration, nature, all of that. Yeah, very exciting. There's a lot going on right now. And of course, space is a fascinating place that tells us a lot about the nature of the universe and about the nature of our planet. And ourselves. Yeah. So, So I think a good place to start would actually be talking about what Yuri's night is and and why it could be a really special thing for pagans. Mm-hmm. And this is something that we would probably know a lot more about if it wasn't for the Cold War between the Soviet Union and the United States that lasted from the end of World War II through 1990, because the first human ever to enter space was a Russian. Uh, Mm -hmm. He was actually, he wasn't Russian. I think he was Georgian. He was a cosmonaut who went up in the Soviet program and successfully orbited the Earth on on the first attempt, which is amazing because the American program tried several times to get someone into orbit and did not succeed Mm -hmm. for a while. But in 1957, Yuri Gagarin went up into space and orbited the Earth. And And safely returned. Safely returned to Earth and, you know, setting setting a reasonably high bar for that kind of enterprise from the very beginning. And so Yuri's night is the 12th of April, which is the anniversary of that orbiting of the Earth. Right. And if you're Russian, you know this. (laughs) Because yes. you learned this deal. in school. It's a, it's a really big deal. If you're a scientist, you also probably know it. Because science museums and technology museums and observatories all very commonly have open houses or parties or other kinds of celebrations on Yuri's Night as kind of a celebration of space exploration and all things space science. And... It's something that is now is international, right? So it did, you know, it did start in Russia, but it's something that people of every nation all over the world who just are appreciative of, of the exploration and the knowledge and achievements and, and all things nerdy too. <laughs> You'll right. find a lot of, of overlap with, you know, with some of the fandoms and that celebration. Right. And we should be clear that while the the exploration of space in the late 50s and early 1960s was pretty much the purview of white men, and that was true of both the Soviet program and the American program. Mm -hmm. But now you have scientists from all over the world working on space exploration. You've got the European Space Agency sending rockets into space and sending, you know, probes, packages of instruments out into space. China has developed its own space program. So, and there are scientists that have been trained from everywhere in the world. 
right. have um, gone to university, become astrophysicists or other pertinent scientists, and then have gotten involved with space programs. So this really is a, a humanity scale effort. Right. And I think that that even when it was just several, the large superpowers, there has often been a sense of space exploration as being an achievement of humankind, right? Yes. So when Apollo 11 happened, people all over the world were saying, we did it, right? There was, of course, there was a lot of, you know, American pride around that, but, you know, the, the folks in Spain and in South Africa and all over, there's, this is something that is about humans and humans reaching out and exploring. Yeah. And I, right. I really appreciate pointing out that it's not just about white dudes now, right? They're even being able to explore space as astronauts, but the people on the ground working in the space fields were incredibly diverse. And so, yeah. And even back in the 1960s, when the only people who were allowed to be astronauts were white men in the United States, it's important for us to point out that at that time, because computers were so primitive, calculations for those moonshots mm -hmm. were done by hand. And they were done by hand, mostly by Black women. Right. And it's, you know, they, they're, they're unsung heroes. They don't get the credit that they should for their role in the, the attainment of humans reaching the moon. There's a very famous picture of one of these women, and I wish I could remember her name, but I don't, standing next to a printout of the calculations that she had done for the Apollo missions. And it was taller than she was. Yeah. It, it's this gigantic stack of paper. And of course, all of those calculations had to be correct. Mm -hmm. And they had to work properly with the computer equipment that the that the the astronauts the took with them yeah. so i mean that it's 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 a mind-boggling achievement <laughs> when you think about it and i just want to make sure that we you know we provide a shout out to those folks as well yeah and and even before we got to the era of actually sending people and things into space actually the original term computer did not refer to a machine. It referred to people doing the computations, and those usually were women. So yes. the computers. And so, you know, we've had a long history of being being involved, and there's all kinds of wonderful uh, science heroes that you can look at that, you know, had to fight their way to get to be at universities and get their names recognized and and all of that. So we're 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 not all the way there yet but it's a lot, it's a lot better than it was, you know? Right. So, right. but this is, this holiday that we're talking about is a celebration of all of those achievements that have been made by, by everybody. And also just delighting in the incredible things that we're learning. It's really a celebration of, of knowledge and science. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and of that, inquisitive, imaginative spirit that humanity has. We're, we're curious little monkeys. <laughs> we, you know, we want to, we want to know how it works and we want to figure it out and take it apart and, you know, understand things. And that 
impulse in us has led us far beyond the solar system with the Voyager missions and well, to the edge of to the heliosphere. Yes, to the heliosphere. Quite far, yeah. Right. And has taught us many, many amazing things about our solar system just in my lifetime. I mean, the impression that we got about the solar system when I was a kid, and I was really into space when I was a kid <laughs> because the Apollo missions were going off. Yeah. And so I was getting up early in the morning with my family to watch the Apollo missions launch. Oh, how cool. And I, and I remember, you know, Apollo 11 walking on the moon. It's it was very, very cool stuff going on then. But still, our impression of the solar system at that time was mostly moon-like, lifeless rocks revolving around these planets mm -hmm. that we didn't know very much about. And now, of course, you know, we've got Enceladus and Titan mm -hmm. and Io and, you know, yeah. all, these, all these amazing, really strange and interesting moons of of the planets that we've we've discovered much more about and taken pictures of and you know in some cases have actually you know done atmospheric dives to get some samples of atmosphere it's it's just we it's have really a whole incredible new what's happened class of planets that turns out is our the dominant class in our in our solar system and we didn't even i mean we had some hints that you know Ceres and Pluto existed but we didn't know about all those other ones of you know, Haumea and Makemake and all of those just amazing other objects. Yeah. Right. Or the solar wind or, well, and now leaving even our solar system talking about things like exoplanets and other, which by the way, a big achievement, we just crossed over 5,000 confirmed exoplanets that we Ooh, know of. Yeah. I hadn't heard that. So, I mean, we suspect that within our galaxy alone, there are literally trillions of planets but we can't confirm that yet right we it actually takes quite a bit of time to look at a star and determine whether that star has planets and it's only we can only see a certain there's a threshold that we can't see underneath so we can right. we're really good at finding really big massive close planets but not so good at finding little low mass and far away planets so we've been only working on this for a few decades and we went from from scientists thinking it would probably never, we'd never be able to see a planet around another star to knowing of thousands of them. Yes. And that brings us to the big news of uh, the past year or so when it comes to space exploration, which is the James Webb Infrared Telescope, which successfully launched, successfully unfolded itself in 350 <laughs> discrete steps, successfully calibrated and is now ready to start doing science. Yeah, and we're getting close. Of, and one of its primary objectives is the identification of exoplanets. Yeah. Well, not it's not for finding the exoplanets primarily. It's for studying those that exist that we can't, that we can find them through other techniques, right? Um, so transit photometry or mm -hmm. radial velocity uh, is basically looking for when the planet passes in front of the star, does it dip in brightness? And the other one is looking for the red shift when the planet is pulling on its star. So yeah. we know that there are stars there, but usually seeing them with the other telescopes that we have are very difficult because they get lost in the glare of their star for trying to look at it in visible light. But in infrared light, it's much easier to see that. And we can 
get a lot more details, we can also do some spectroscopy with infrared that can give us clues to what kinds of materials are in those atmospheres. Mm -hmm. And that allows us to look for certain, certain types of chemicals that we would only associate with life. So those would be our, our biosignatures, basically, that we can look for. And right. of course, we're interested in other planets, not just for the possibility of finding life, but that's one that a lot of people are interested in. Are there, are there other people out there? Right, I mean, right. Is there other life? But we're also interested, are there other civilizations? Yeah, and there are some compounds that are actually pretty rare in, in as far as we can tell, they're, they're pretty rare in the universe, except when they're assembled by life. Yeah. So we can look for those. I mean, you know, we look for methane, we look for ammonia. Well, those ones are ones that have a lot of, of abiotic, but for, for instance, phosphines. So that was what the right. whole excitement with Venus, I guess a year or two ago at this point, it turned out that that was probably measurement error, but we were really excited that, look, there are these phosphines and yes, there may be some ways to make them abiotically. So not life, but here on earth, the way that the vast majority of it is made is actually by microbial processes. So mm -hmm. when we were finding or thought we were finding it in the Venusian atmosphere, we we're going, how, how is this possible? We don't know of any way that this could geologically be produced in these amounts. Again, unfortunately, it turned out that that probably wasn't the case. And that happens a lot in science, though. That's right. part of the process, right? One team put this forward, said, look what we found. And then the other teams looked at it and went, mm, well, actually, you see some problems in your methodology here. Yeah. Oh, darn. That doesn't right. mean that there isn't life there but that that particular clue might not be a valid clue. Right? Yeah, it's, it's, it's questionable data, so it, it doesn't necessarily tell us anything. But this is the value of peer review, right? Yeah. You know, when you have peer review by experts, then you get data that's more likely to be true. And, um, you know, this is something that we go back to in naturalistic or science-based paganism and atheopaganism all the time. Using the scientific method gives us a better sense of whether or not something is likely to be true. And that's a very, it's a, a markedly different approach to knowledge than the experiential approach to knowledge that much of the pagan community tends to rely on. Mm -hmm. But it's also one that we can have higher confidence in because right. our, our perceptual systems are so subject to error and glitch. And this is very well documented. So just putting in a quick plug for critical thinking and the scientific method, you know, these are, these are important concepts for us as science-based pagans. Right. And, and even if we aren't doing science as in not being professional scientists in our life, I think for everybody, it's really important. So. Yeah, because we are bombarded with information now. And a lot of it is nonsense. Yeah. A, lot, a lot of it is logically fallacious advertising that's supposed to make you feel bad until you buy a product mm -hmm. or associate something really wonderful with with buying a product or a service or just to get your view so that it gets advertising money right right just make it sensational enough that you engage with it yeah and if it confirms your biases or angers you then you're more likely to be riled up by it and therefore to pay more attention to it and 
these techniques are well understood and they are used by Google and Facebook and all those very standard now. It's, it's not, yeah, those are yeah. the big guys, but, but it's happening it, all over the place. It's everybody. Exactly. Yeah. And so our capacity for parsing what's likely to be true from what's likely what's less likely to be true becomes a survival skill in this time. Mm -hmm. um, if we want to be people whose relationship with reality is grounded in credible data. Right. Yeah. So Could that's, that's one reason why all of this is very much of interest to science-based pagans. But I was going to ask the other question, which is, why is all this space stuff pagan? <laughs> yeah. Well, I do. I do want to circle back around and just to the James Webb before we go there, because that's oh, a really good, good okay. question. But yeah. we we mentioned one tiny thing about the James Webb. I mean, it's huge, but it's only yes. one tiny part of of the mission. And if I could just run for a second with this. Sure. Um, there's a lot of excitement about the James Webb, but but it's not always explained like why it's such a big deal. And one, it is, yes, the largest telescope that we've ever actually launched and put into space. And with telescopes, the bigger the mirror, basically the more resolution you get, the better you can see. So it's it's kind of a joke, but bigger really is better, right? But it's also infrared and light, when we think about light, we're thinking about visible light most of the time, which is the type of light that our eyes are sensitive to. But humans actually only see a tiny part of the spectrum of light, and there's way more colors. So these different wavelengths correspond with different colors. And we can go all the way to gamma rays down to radio. Radio is actually a form of light, but infrared is a form of light that is a little bit redder than red, right? Infrared below red. And it sees thing it can see through certain materials right certain kinds of light like visible light goes through the glass in your window just fine but doesn't go through say the wall x-rays which is light goes through your skin but not through your bones well infrared's really good at seeing through things like dust but it's also going to be very useful to us because the farther away that you look with a telescope the further back in time you're looking because light isn't instantaneous. It actually travels at a finite speed. To us on earth, it feels instantaneous because these distances are so short, but something like the sun is eight light minutes away. It takes light eight minutes to get to us. So if we look at something that's a thousand light years away, that took a thousand years for that light to get to us. But what we think is happening with the universe is that as time goes on, we believe that the universe is actually expanding. So as light travels through the expanding universe, it's getting stretched out. And so this is stretching those wavelengths redder and redder and redder. And some of the early light from the only a few hundred million years after the, the Big Bang has been stretched so far into red that it's passed out of visible light. So we can't see it with a telescope like the Hubble, because the Hubble doesn't see an infrared, it sees invisible and a little into ultraviolet. So this telescope will let us see with light, see these earliest time periods that we've never been able to see before. So we should be able to see galaxies at the earliest stages of formation. We should be able to look and see, you know, our quasi stars real, how did they form? Could we see the first population of stars? So it's opening up a whole 
it's not even like a new chapter, but it's a whole new book in our understanding of the universe. And it's probably going to throw a wrench into so many of our different accepted theories that we're like, oh, that doesn't make sense. The data doesn't support that and all kinds of new things. So in addition to studying the nearby things like exoplanets, we're going to be able to see the distant past in a way that we have only ever dreamed of being able to do. Mm -hmm. So that's why I just want to put that plug into like how amazing of a, of an edge of a frontier that we're standing on right now with with science, with space science. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for that. And it should, it also bears saying that, uh, younger phenomena emit ultraviolet light as well so we'll be able to see phenomena in oh, the in the infrared, in, the, yeah. in the infrared spectrum as well that's so, right you know we'll be able to look at stuff that's newer and capture images which can then be false colored and differentiated into different wavelengths so there will there will be some very dramatic images from the james webb i'm sure oh absolutely yeah um, so you know if we've all been so wowed by the Hubble. I, I think we can expect, you know, literal order of magnitude 10 times. More, more so, yeah. More so with these images from the James Webb. So it's it's a very exciting time. And the calibration just happened in the last couple of months. So we're only, we're, we're just starting to crack the book. Yeah, hopefully. a little bit. Hopefully early summer is when we should start getting some science returned for from it. That's if everything seems to be going on track. So, you know, it's, we're right there. (laughs) And there were so many things that could have gone wrong. Yeah. Um, I mean, there were so many things that could have gone wrong. This, this project was first envisioned, what, 1986? 89. Yeah. 89. Okay. And so the year the wall came down. Yeah. Back to what we were starting with. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, when the when the Soviet Union collapsed and the, the Cold War was over. It was several years before Hubble launched. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. And, it, and I mean, it went through a lot of different changes over the years. The initial launch dates, I mean, what were those supposed to be back in the the early teens, like a 2012 or something launch or something? Yeah. But, yeah. But unlike the Hubble, it's not in low Earth orbit. The Hubble is in Leo so that we actually were able to go and make repairs when those needed to happen. The James Webb is in a, in a special orbital kind of island where it's actually orbiting the sun, but matching the matching Earth's orbit called L2. And that's, we're talking roughly four times the distance from the Earth and the moon. So right. it's about a million, it's about a million miles away, a little short of that. Yeah. So if something goes wrong with that, we're not going out to fix it. Humans have right. never actually been beyond the moon, right? I don't think we really have the, the capability of launching people there at this point. No. So everything had to be absolutely perfect. And it was this huge international effort, right? It was, yes, primarily a NASA project, but there was ESA involved and the Canadian Space Agency. I think, was JAXA involved as well? There's a, but there were a lot of, of agencies that were in this Honestly, I don't remember. Yeah, I think um, the the UK space agency was as well. Yes. So yes. yeah. So it's very exciting, and it's going to continue to be exciting. And now I'm going to loop back around to why is this exciting for Pegasus? <laughs> yes. Right. And my answer to that, my really short answer, is that as we have alluded to so many times, and 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 specified, articulated on this podcast. 
paying attention is so important to our paganism, you know, understanding the, the world of nature around us. And even though we can't see it except at night because our atmosphere scatters the blue light and puts this sort of shell over the top of us, we're in space. Yeah. We're, we're, we're interacting with space. Stuff is raining down on the earth from space all the time. Radiation is coming into to the earth from space. And well, the uh, things that were made from would stellar processes, right? Stars had to right. form the heavier elements and supernovae and neutron star collisions and all of those things just to make the literal earth and, and our bodies, which are just extensions of the earth. Right, right. So there's there's the wow factor of that, the sheer mm -hmm. wonder of it, the awe at the fact that all of this is connected, it's all interacting, and it's all expanding and evolving as it has from the moment of the Big Bang. But beyond that, I think there's something about the human project mm. that makes this of interest to pagans. And this may be tough for some folks because, you know, the, the romantic conceptualization of nature in mm. Western culture wasn't really a very good framing of, of reality. Yeah. Because there was this idea that there was nature and then there was humanity. Mm -hmm. And you sort of had to vote with your feet. If you were Jean-Jacques Rousseau or you were Henry Walden, then, I'm sorry, Henry Thoreau, mm -hmm. then you, you voted for nature and rejected humanity. And if you were you know, someone who is more, you know, involved with governance and culture and those kinds of things, then you, you voted with humanity. False dichotomy set up there. Yeah, it really is because we're nature. Yeah. What we're doing is natural. Everything that we do, everything we've made, even the artificial chemicals that we've created that, that do not exist otherwise in nature, they're still natural because they follow the laws of physics. Right. You wouldn't call formic acid not natural because ants made it. Right. So the things that humans make, those are natural too. Yeah. Now, that's not to say that humans aren't well out of balance right. with the biotic systems of the earth. We are, but framing this as a war or a battle or a competition and then picking a side is both grossly oversimplified and not a very helpful way of framing. It's not useful. Yeah, it's, it's not constructive. It's, it, it's no, it doesn't really. It's, it's setting us up for failure, right? Because you're never going to like natural processes we'll never quote unquote win against that, right? So if you set up your win condition as having defeated natural processes, you can't, you will never win. Right, right. So while Yucca and I are uh, big environmentalists and have both worked professionally in the conservation fields, you know, both at a public policy level and in the restoration context, the implementation 
on the ground. I, I think I can speak for both of us when I say we feel very strongly that the human project is of interest to pagans. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the success of humans who are these remarkable beings, each of which carries around one of the most complex, interesting, and mysterious phenomena we are aware of in the universe, <laughs> which is a human brain, is is something that's relevant to pagans, not only because we want to grow ourselves and live the fullest lives we can and build the deepest relationships we can with those that we love, but also because humanity itself has a value. And we, we can hope for some level of success mm -hmm. for humanity. And one aspect of that success is in scratching that curious itch, <laughs> you know, learning the things that we are so curious about. And we've, we, we stumbled over time onto a really fantastic method for, for learning those things. It's not a perfect method. Nothing humans create is perfect, right? but it's a very good method. And the peer-reviewed scientific process is a very good method for learning even very complex things. Yeah. Well, I mean, think about all the things that the, the very complex and complicated things that we know about, those have been learned through science, right? Yes. Being able to do things like send people to the moon or be, have a little remote control rover not actually very little, it's pretty big, on another planet, right? And all of these things, or going to the bottom of our oceans, right? Right, Exploring the hydrothermal vents, or flying, or any of these things. It's because we did science to do it. Right. And that's a self-correcting process. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And you know, when we first did it, we didn't do it very well. You know, the Wright brothers were up for what? 120 <laughs> seconds, I think, was was the figure. I don't remember what it was, but it was it was short. It, but was, it, was, it, it was something, short. Though, right? Yeah, it was powered flight, heavier than air, and it was a start. It was yeah. something. And within 50 years... <laughs> We were on you know, another planet. Or, yeah. or, ordinary people were buying tickets on commercial aircraft to fly from continent to continent. That's how fast it all happened. It is, it is extraordinary to live in this time. Yes, we have incredible challenges. And most of those challenges are of our own making. Yeah. That we didn't intend to make them. But intent and impact are not the same thing. And that's what we always need to be aware of when we think about when we hurt someone inadvertently. If our impact is different than our intent, we still need to apologize and make amends. Yeah. Because good intentions are, are not enough to excuse behavior that's harmful. Right. But as pagans, thinking about these big issues, thinking about the sacredness of it all, understanding it is a part of admiring it yeah understanding it is a part of embracing it for the wonder that it shows us and helping us to be able to make more informed and responsible choices mm -hmm. right there's often 
something that I hear echoed over and over again is, you know, why should we be spending money exploring the universe and exploring space when we have so many problems here on earth? And I'm sympathetic to that, right? We have so many things that we need to work on. But I think that the exploration and the, the everything that we learn from that can put us in a better position to make better choices. Like thinking about studying why go to Mars or go to Venus. Well, comparative planetology lets us understand our own world on a level that simply would not be possible otherwise. Right. right? Because, because we do a, a controlled study on earth, the way you, you could do a controlled study in, in the lab and you put the, this, and this condition and that, and that we can't do that with the planet. So our next best thing is to learn as much as we can about the things that are similar to right. earth, right. And right. try and make decisions based on what we learn. And, and so many things we, it's really hard to see how it's all connected, but that there is always a connection back to picking something that we learn for one, from one field and being able to apply that to another. This is a really simple one, but photovoltaics, right? Mm-hmm. So although that wasn't developed specifically for the space program, the space program really did do a lot of development on it. And what that contributed to the, the field back here on earth allows us now to have solar power, right? Mm-hmm. This, this is being recorded right now. You are listening to this podcast because that's the power that's powering my house. There is no electricity in the part of the state where I live. It's not there. It's not available unless you use photovoltaics. And so it's, you never know how it comes back around. Right. And all of that is true and important and valid. And I also go back to the piece that I wrote in my book, which I think is so important to acknowledge because the 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 proselytizing atheists like Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, they tend to miss this piece, which is that humans are not just rational thinking creatures. We are also emotional, aspirational creatures. We have hopes and dreams and and optimism and pessimism and you know and and romantic aspirations. And the voyage to the frontier is something that has been inherent in humanity at least since somebody decided to leave Africa. Yeah. We've been, we've been going, we've been, we've been going from, you know, we've been making boats and going to Australia. We've been, uh, you know, we've been moving around and interested in seeing what's over the horizon. And the horizon now is space. And I feel that there would be, without space exploration and the learning that it provides us, I just feel that to some degree, the wind would go out of the sails of humanity. We, you know, if we turned back in on ourselves and I'm the first to say, I want to see everybody fed, housed, healthcare, clothed. I do not consider these to be competing priorities. Yeah. but where we should be mining the resources for that are not from these not very well-funded space programs. It's from the gigantic piles of resources that billionaires have accumulated. Right. They, don't need, <laughs> yeah. they just don't need. Nobody yeah. needs that much money. 
Yeah. And so that's, that's where I am with it. And there's room for debate over all of those things. Of course, they're complicated issues and there are a lot of factors that go into them, but I don't think you excuse a poor set of social values and social priorities by pulling the plug on your feeding of human curiosity. Yeah. It's, it gets people. I mean, ask not every single seven-year-old, but most seven-year-olds, you ask them what, what are they really like? What are they curious about? And how many of them are going to tell you, I want to know more about space. It's space or dinosaurs, one or the other. Right? Both awesome. <laughs> Can we combine right. the two? Awesome. Actually, my littlest is really into, well, he's not into dinosaurs. He's actually into pterosaurs. And he's really, oh. really like particular about the distinction between them, which is adorable. Okay. Uh-huh. But yeah, but right. So pterosaurs in space. So I like that idea. Huh? But yeah, right. And then that's one. So let's, I just think that it's all connected, right? And the, exploration of our own past and our own future and the context that we're in. I think it's a beautiful thing for us to, to be able to explore that. So. Absolutely. And I mean, you can hear in our voices, how animated we become when we talk about these things. And, you know, I think about the public scientists that are out there and I mean, it was, it was a considerable effort for Stephen Hawking to be able to communicate excitement. You know, that was, that was, that was very challenging for him. And yet he still could. Yeah. Because his excitement at what was being discovered and his burning curiosity about the nature of the universe came through even his terrible affliction and disability. You could just, you could feel it coming from him. And, you know, one of the, one of the Ethiopian principles, one of the 13 principles that we, we work to live our lives by in, you know, amongst those who are Ethiopians is curiosity. Mm-hmm. And the answer, the, the, the feeding of curiosity feeds our awe and reverence, which is the second principle. Yeah. The awe and the reverence are what give us a sense of meaning and purpose and beauty and joy in living. And the curiosity is a means to the end of that, as well as a means to the end of bridging that huge gap between ourselves and another person Mm -hmm. and really trying to understand what it's like in their world and what their needs are and how we can best work with those. So space, it's cool. It is. It's really cool. (laughs) And I want to put, it's always hard for me to do self-promotion, but I'm going to make myself do it. For anyone who does want to hear me talk about space a lot, and if you're on TikTok, I do have a TikTok channel that's all about space and and all of that. So that's space underscore STEM, S-T-E-M, like science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. I'll put a link. So if you're interested in that and you just want to, you know, talk about What's a quasar? What's a this? Ask questions, all of that. You can find me there. I if think I just followed that. Did you? Because, yeah, okay. I, I, I set up a TikTok account for the Ethiopian Society, and it's it's just a placeholder now. I'm following a lot of people, but I haven't put any videos up there. Mm-hmm. But I, I wanted to capture 
the Ethiopian label before somebody else took it. And although there are quite a number of oh, there's some cool videos on that are tagged Ethiopian or Ethiopianism. Yeah. On TikTok. I, it, you know, it's really an interesting thing because my first Im- impression of TikTok was not positive. It was like, it, the stuff you're feeding me is really vapid. And I don't know why anybody is sticking with this. But as the algorithm starts to get to know you, there is some amazing feminist content, anti capitalist content, environmental content. The content. native talk is really is awesome. Yeah. There's some really awesome creators. I mean, I actually would, even though I'm on TikTok, I would suggest to anyone who, if you're not there, um, you don't need it. <laughs> it's it's it it's really really good at what it does, and you will look up three hours later from your phone and go, "Where did my day go?" Yeah. Right. So if you ha- if you're already struggling with screen with screen addiction, it's not a great doesn't help you right I kind of think of it like you know I don't want to be giving like advices on great new beers to somebody who's struggling with alcoholism that's a good point right Uh, yeah but if it's something that you already are being able to manage and are already there on TikTok like I'd love to have come check it out and for people who want right what you're saying Mark about developing the Ethiopian channel like if people have ideas about that, we would love to hear that. We'd love right? to hear it. Yeah. Especially now that the permissible length of the videos has increased somewhat. I mean, it's, you can do a, a short little overview in, in three minutes, but now that it's expanded to 10, yeah, it's really possible to do some things. I, I well, think most people still don't have 10. They just kind of randomly give it to some people and not. To oh, others. really? Yeah. Everybody can, everybody can do three, but they will see what we'll see if the 10 sticks a lot of people are upset about that but interesting yeah okay i think it started at 15 seconds though and they like slowly went up i use every second of my three minutes i have to edit out (laughs) i have to go in and edit out what i say i'm like oh do i really need that that is in there because three minutes is so hard to say anything and it is it um, is yeah i mean especially when you're talking about stem content i mean that's because there are a lot of moving pieces to, you know, to, to that kind of education and winnowing up, it down to a single point is tough. Yeah. I end up doing a lot of multiple series where I'm like, okay, we talked about protoplanetary disks this time. So now we're talking about this, watch my video on that. And then, uh-huh. you know, 20 people in the comments linking them say, watch, watch the first video, like I said, but uh-huh. they're, they're working on it. So it's a, it's a great platform for connecting with people, but it is, it's a bit of a black hole. Yeah. And, but my feeling is, you know, if, if this is where younger people are going, I want to be there with them. I, I, you know, I, I want our community to be there with them because otherwise we're, you know, we're, we're just in this sort of hidebound capsule of people who are getting steadily more gray and that's not that's not really community building it's it's unproductive mm-hmm. yeah and i mean as i said there is some there's some really sharp thinking out there on on tiktok stuff yeah there, there really is extremely sharp thinking a lot of incredible anti-racist stuff the indigenous stuff is very good as well yeah 
just there's a yeah and in pretty much any of the scientific fields you're interested in like there's somebody from that field doing it there's a ton of astrophysicists on there and like there's this lady who does like CRISPR that I follow and like all kinds of just and people who do history and like if you mm -hmm. get to that side you've got to purposely go and search out that content and then the algorithm starts learning that that's what you want rather than wanting like the whatever there's there's all kinds of stuff right but it doesn't you don't have to see any dances if you don't want I mean there's some pretty cool dances too but if you'd like to not <laughs> be watching dances on TikTok you can you can get to the side of TikTok that doesn't have that uh -huh. so but okay. yeah so that that's the plug so space underscore underscore stem if people are interested cool very but cool why don't we we talk a little bit before we finish up today about the coming month or so in the night sky good idea yeah because we are for for those of us in the northern hemisphere we're moving into the time of year where it's comfortable to be outside after dark right i know that at least in my area in the middle of the winter and it's you know nine degrees fahrenheit out you don't want to be out there but now that you know you're not freezing there's there's a lot of really fun things coming up the first thing is not right now but next month there is going to be a total lunar eclipse for north yeah. america yeah so for north america at a fairly reasonable time the one that happened in november was in the middle of the night for most people it was like two or three in the morning but this one should be depending on where you live between like seven and nine so I think a lot of people can stay up for that. And that's on the night of Sunday the 15th, right? I think so. Oh, let me see here. Yes. So yeah, for in the, for in the States, it's going to be the 15th. So universal time you might see on calendars, it's saying the 16th, but on calendars, that's always going to tell you it in universal time. So you just have to know what your time is relevant to that. Yeah. So, so that'll be... That and that'll be the weekend that we're at Sun Tree Retreat for That's anyone who'll right. be there with us. And and we will be bringing some telescopes and stuff to that event for anyone who wants. Well, you you well will I will yes I telescope. I I and my little one who's coming with me. So and we're going to be moving into times where there's more meteor showers. The last few months there wasn't a lot going on meteor shower wise, but we have the Lyrids coming up. There'll still be a bit of moon for that, which makes it hard to see, but that kind of sets off the whole meteor shower season. Mm -hmm. So most nights of the year, even if there's not a specific shower going on, you can usually see several meteors. That's pretty typical if you've got dark skies. If you're right in the middle of the city, it's going to be a little bit trickier to be able to see it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Oh, and the other one is that if you are a morning person, all the visible planets in the for the rest of the month, they're actually lining up in the morning. It's like a diagonal line across the sky in the pre-dawn hour. So get up like half an hour to an hour before dawn. And you can look out and just see this beautiful little line of like piercing bright planets in the sky. And then maybe stay up and listen to the birds start to sing and the dawn yeah. come over the sky. So well worth it. Yeah. A good thing to do once in a while. Even if you're not a morning person. Yeah. Which I am not, <laughs> but for some reason, a couple of years ago, I started waking up very early in the morning and I've been doing that ever since. So I don't know. Things change. 
Yeah. I wanted to put out a brief shout out. We, or I'm sorry, uh, not our podcast, but Ethiopaganism got name checked on the podcast, Go Home Bible, You're Drunk, which is a, a well-known skeptic atheist podcast. I um, haven't heard of this one before. Yes. So, and they're, they're great for the for the ex-evangelicals who are among our listenership, for the folks that are recovering from from particularly from Christian religion that that they don't feel good about, mm-hmm. they go into some detail about particular sections of the Bible and how they contradict one another, or you know why they don't make any sense in a modern context, any of that kind of thing. So, go home, Bible, you're drunk. Podcast, very nice people, and they gave us a nice shout out. So that was cool. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Great. Well, this has been a great conversation. I know we could talk about space for the next three hours, but we have to stop it somewhere. We do. (laughs) So... Just encourage any of you to, if you've got any planetariums or museums in your area and you're comfortable going out, check out, see maybe if they're doing something or there'll be a lot of online events too. You'd be able to find some, some cool Yuri's night celebrations, or maybe you could do a little bit of your own, you know, maybe put on some old episodes of Cosmos. Right. So, yeah. And that could be as quickly uh, this this podcast is going to drop on the 11th which is mm-hmm. the day before yuri's night and th- it may be on the following weekend it just depends on when yeah it's often on the weekends right because people yeah. that that works better for people's schedules usually so that's a good really good point so yeah. well thanks mark this was great yeah it was thanks, thanks for, so for nerding out a little bit and we didn't talk about ice volcanoes, but maybe we'll be able to talk about those. Oh, the, the ice volcanoes. That's right. Oh, yeah. Well. Yeah. Have, so have to search that Pluto ice volcanoes. Yeah. So, all right. Cool. All right. Take Thanks, care, everybody. everyone.